Hello everyone. Hey, listen, so glad that we're able to do this and continue in this series together. I want to invite you to go ahead and get your Bible out. Go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll get there in a minute, um, but that's where we're going to camp out for most of the message today. But listen, I heard a pastor say something the other day that I've been thinking about in light of this series that we're in. You know, we're talking about the separation of church and hate, kind of given our climate right now. Um, I think this is such a timely thing for us to discuss. But he said, for Americans, politics have become our religion. Think about that. For, for most of us in an American culture, politics are taking the form of some, or taking the place of religion for many of us. And, and in many ways, I think he was actually right. I mean, think about this. Sometimes we look at government as the solution or, or the go, to go even further, the savior of some of the issues that we're going to face. We look at it as if it's like our hope or for some people, they put their identity or their security um, on. And it's all those things are determined by who's in office. And so as an American culture, sometimes we look at politics, we look at government as though it's taking the place of Jesus. That's such a crazy thought. Now, listen, I think government certainly does have a place in our culture. All right. Obviously. In fact, God is the one who established leadership, governing leadership. If you read through scripture, that's what you see. God's sovereign hand has allowed and made place for and put into place governing leaders and authorities. And I read a book by Christopher Bryan called Render to Caesar, you know, from a passage in Mark where Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And so he wrote a book around Jesus as he addressed politics and addressed political tense situations. But here's what he says. He made this point about the governing authorities. He said their origin is that God permits them, right? Their purpose is to serve God's glory by promoting God's peace and God's justice. Think about that. God establishes governing authorities to fulfill his purpose. That is creating and glorifying God through presenting his peace, presenting and standing for his justice. And he ends the quote by saying this, for so long as they attempt those things, they may do quite well. As long as government governing officials, authorities in any nation, in any time, as long as they stick to those things, they're going to do all right. That's what he's saying. So again, government and politics, I think, have their place. But Christians do not look to government as our hope. We do not look to politics to save us or for security. That would be counter to the ways of the kingdom. That would be in conflict with our kingdom citizenship. So when Jesus, when he faced, was faced with politically charged situations, he wouldn't actually address political systems of structure or systems and structure. What he would do, he would address someone's heart. And so that's why we're doing this series. He knew real and lasting change wasn't going to come from a policy change. It was going to come from a change of heart. That's why we're doing this series, approaching it and aiming at the heart. We know that policy change isn't going to lead to significant change. So here is the main goal of our series. You ready? We want to learn how to become better followers of Jesus during an election year. 
It's that simple. How do we become better followers of Jesus, citizens of heaven first during an election year? So we're tackling three matters of the heart, civility, humility, and unity. Last week, Cam talked about civility. So if you missed it, you can check out that message online. I hope you'll do that as we go through this whole series. This week, however, we're tackling humility. And that's what brings us to Philippians 2. Think, this passage is perhaps one of the most amazing passages on humility. All right. So if you're not there yet, you better get there because we're going to jump in. We're going to pick up in verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So look at this, humility, count, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Humility is this idea of a lowliness of mind. This idea here is this sober and appropriate view of yourself. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. What he's saying is, listen, you're not as bad as the devil's going to make you think on one hand. And frankly, you're not as good as your mom thinks you are either. Okay. He's saying in humility, you find a way to have this sober lowliness of mind, this appropriate view of self. Now, I love this book right here. All right, this is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you have not read it, I want you to read this book because this book is so simple. Look at this. Look how small that thing is. But it is packed full of some amazing stuff. And we're going to read a passage or a, a section of this just to help us understand humility a little bit better. But here's what I want to do. In fact, I want to give away a copy of this um, to somebody right now. So if you are on the chat, I'm going to give you a question. And whoever answers it first, and obviously whoever answers it correctly, um, we're going to send you a copy of this. Our team's going to reach out to you and do this. Here's the question. Paul wrote the letter Philippians, the one that we're looking at, to the church in what first century city? Where was the church that the saints, um, the Philippian saints were in? What was the city that they were in? If you answer it right, we're going to send you a copy of this. But here's what I want you to do. In, you know, page 31 of this, and again, it's not a long book, but listen to this. So Tim Keller, he writes this. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. So here we have Tim Keller quoting C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. This is like literary inception right here, okay? So hang with me. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. We would not be always, they would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing that we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. He's simply saying a truly gospel humble person just doesn't consider oneself. It just, I am not the center of my universe. I'm not even the first in my universe. Paul even goes on further to define this. Look at verse four. He says this, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
So you're sitting here going, I'm not just obsessed with my own thinking. I'm actually holding up the interests of others. I'm holding those things as significant. Now, um, when I was preparing for this message, my son came in. He saw me read and he said, hey, I want to help you write the message. And I was like, this is pretty good timing because I don't really know what to do right now. So I said, go I want you to read this passage and then I want you to tell me what you said. And he came back to this verse and he goes, Dad, this doesn't make sense. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, listen, how do you have two people who hold the interest of the other person? How do they ever go anywhere? Like, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. And I was like, you know what? That's actually kind of hard to argue with. Like these, these two people could be super annoying, but here's what I know, all right? Here's what I know, just from thinking about relationships. I have never actually met two people who have acted like this, where their relationship did not flourish. You put in a marriage two people who hold the interest of the other person as more significant than their own. You put two people in a marriage where they wake up thinking about what the interest of the other person, the interest of their spouse is the first thought I guarantee you that marriage is going to continue to flourish and grow. So the question is, how, how do we live humble lives? Look at what happens next in verse five. And so in verse five, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he goes through all this, do nothing out of selfish ambition, take on humility, hold other people's opinion above your own. And then he says, how do we do this? Well, you have to have the mind of Christ. You have to, and here's what the passage literally is saying. Take his mind and put it in you. Because when I think about myself, I know I am not a naturally humble person. When I think about my mind, I am not naturally thinking about what matters. What my mind does is broken and, and it's not going to do well. So I literally have to take on the mind of Christ and put it in myself. That's what it's saying. And listen, this is not as hard or abstract as you might think. How many of you remember dating? All right. Um, listen, and, and if you're honestly in that awkward struggle right now, I'm sorry. Um, my advice is pretty simple. Um, seek after Jesus and who he wants you to become and then let him sort it out, okay? Just pursue him at all costs, right? Pursue what he wants you to become and he's gonna sort out, he's gonna deal with this. People typically get into trouble when they try to take the reins of their own dating life, when they try to force something to happen, when they try to make it work according to what I want. But how many of you, just to go back to this, if you're married now, kind of go back to it. If you're in it, good luck. If you're not there yet, you're not missing much. It's weird. Um, but here's the thing. How many of you did this? You were dating somebody or you were interested in somebody and you said, Hey, what kind of music do you like? And they said, oh, you know what? I really love country music. And you're like, you love country music? I love country music too. I, I mean, yeah. And wait, you love hiking and making your own granola? I love hiking and making my own granola. You know, you're just, all of a sudden you're taking on a different mind, right? All of a sudden, you, you begin to shape yourself around this other person. I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm saying it's what some of us have done. But the reality is this. Ready? Here's the main point. In many ways, who you desire to spend time with and how you spend that time directly impacts your mind. 
who you spend time with, who you desire to spend time with, and how you use that time directly impacts your mind. This is how we would put on the mind of Christ. You spend time with Him. You spend time pursuing Him through the Word. You spend time delighting in a conversation with Him called prayer. You spend time with people who have also taken on the mind of Christ and you begin to rub shoulders with them and all of a sudden you see, oh, this is what it looks like to start taking on the mind of Christ. All right, this is how it plays out. And so he goes on, have this mind in, in, in you. And, it, and all of a sudden you were trying to take on his mind. This is how we put it on. And this is a long spending time with others. Next, here's where Paul goes. Okay, I kind of lost my spot for a second. So after you take on the mind, the question is, what does the mind of Christ actually look like? How does it play out? Look at verse six. It says, who? This is the mind of Christ now. If you want to know what humility as lived out by Jesus looks like, here's what it looks like. Who though he was in the form of God, pay attention to that word. If you've got a Bible, underline that word, circle that word, that's important. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that. Even though he was the form, that's the Greek word morphe. That means essence. Let me read a little bit something to you. It says, the expression of something that reflects or manifests fully and truly and permanently the essence of what something is. That means clearly. You ready? Jesus is God. He's not a lesser God. He's not a replica of God. He's not a copy of God, but he is then the very essence and nature God, as believers, this is what we stand on. Anybody who says something about Jesus that is less than God himself, we don't think the same thing. This passage clearly says he is the morphe, the essence, the very nature of God. Now look at this. And being the very nature of God, he had access and rightful claim to all that comes with being creator God of the universe. And yet he did not cling to what was rightfully his. Think of that. Think of the humility that requires that all of this is accessible and rightfully his and he let it go. He did not fight for equality. He did not stretch to grasp and take hold of and cling to it. Instead, here's what he did. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself of these things. You see, Jesus' nature didn't change. When he came, he did not become something other than God. What happened is his limitations changed. He took on different limitations. Bruce Ware, he wrote a book called The Man Christ Jesus, and he helps us understand what it might look like for Jesus to empty himself. What does that actually mean? And he writes this, and it's a little bit uh, long, but I'm going to read it for you because it's an it's a awesome picture. Imagine now a great and glorious kingdom that is ruled by a strong and wealthy king. 
And this king has every privilege one can imagine. He possesses the finest of everything money can buy. He eats every day from the choicest cuisine. He wears the most elegant and exquisite clothes. He is cared for by the highest educated and most skilled doctors in the land. And he is protected by an impenetrable force of royal soldiers. Yet, one day as the king was taken on a short journey to another portion of the royal city, he passed by an area where seldom he had seen. Before him on the streets, he observed several beggars and he could not get these poor men out of his mind. So on his return to the palace, he thought to himself, I wonder what it would be like to live as a beggar. And he could not remove this question from his mind. It captured him. And so with a determination to find out what such a life is like, he decided to move out of the royal palace and onto some of the impoverished streets of his city. And instead of wearing fine clothes from his wardrobe, he put on tattered, smelly clothes of a beggar. In every way he could, he acquired day-to-day life and limitations of a beggar. Now, having on the restrictions of a beggarly life when the king was hungry, although he could have called for the royal chefs to bring him a choice meal in order to live a life as a beggar, he instead learned what it was like to go hungry and have to beg for food. And when the king grew ill from disease surrounding him, while he could have called a highly trained doctor to attend to him in order to live life as a beggar, he accepted being sick with little, if any, help for his illness. And when insulted and mistreated by mean-spirited passers-by, although he could have called the royal guard to defend him and bring justice and to bear against this cruelty in order to live, listen to this, in order to live life as a beggar, he accepted with no retaliation the mistreatment and insults foisted upon him. See the picture here, Jesus chose to empty himself. And that, is a place, uh, and that is a place around himself, limitations of which he has every right to live beyond. He didn't have to experience life this way, yet he chose it. Because in doing so, we now have an opportunity to know him more fully. In my mind, this is one of the greatest displays of power. The fact that Jesus could have everything and yet restrained himself. Restraint is in fact the display of his power. This is what sets Jesus apart from every other leader. I mean, think about it. He emptied himself of his right as opposed to demanding that they be observed. That's why he changed everything for us. So look at what happens next. Ready? In verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't just become human. He didn't just endure everything that we endure. He took on himself more than any of us can endure. You see, this is what we see from this passage. Humility produces self-sacrifice and willing observance. It produces this. It is what comes with the territory, a self-sacrifice, a quick obedience. It's just one of those things I've already given up those rights. I've already emptied myself of what I would claim as my own right. And so self-sacrifice and obedience are just part of this. And here's where it gets good. You ready? Verse nine. 
Therefore, and again, whenever you see the word therefore, you just pay attention to everything that we've been talking about. And so this whole chapter leads up to this point. It says this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Let's keep going. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, just stay right here because here's what I, I want to hit a, a, a quick pause on this. I know some of you right now, um, you've been maybe pursuing Jesus or you're at least watching this so you have some degree of interest. But I, want, I just want to say this. If you are at all concerned or interested in discovering truth, if you are at all concerned about a restlessness that's like within you and you've been trying to figure out what is, what's happening, where is it coming from, you're trying to figure out you know, what to do about this or what next, you have to consider Jesus. Like you have to consider him because here's what this passage is saying. This passage is saying that if you decide to or you feel comfortable, then you can make Jesus Lord of your life. The reality is we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. God has already exalted him with a name that is higher than any other name. He's been given a position of Lord that nobody else has earned. Nobody else comes close. He is already Lord. You decide to surrender to that or not. You don't make him the Lord of your life or anything like that. He is Lord. Are you going to surrender to it? This is why this passage is so amazing. Because Jesus gave his life humbled himself, gave his life, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when he did that, God exalted him. Here's the point I want you to understand. Jesus accomplished his work as Lord of all creation through the path of humility. This is how he got it done. This is how he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. Humility. Through humility, Jesus positioned himself to be exalted by God. Think about that. It was when he humbled himself that he was in a position that God would exalt him and raise him up. And here's what's amazing about this. This dynamic works in the same way for us. This reality is as true for us as it was for him. If we choose to live humble lives, if we humble ourselves, we position ourselves under God, therefore inviting him to be over our outcomes. He is a very good person to have on your side. He's a very good person to hold the responsibility of the outcomes of your life. That's why we gladly humble ourselves to him because we know it is in our best interest. We know that when we humble ourselves, he will exalt us just like he did with Jesus. So we've been a lot, we've done a lot of work in our head, right? We, we've walked through this phenomenal passage and I feel like we just flew through it. So I wanna encourage you, go back and read it again. Read it slowly. And as you're reading it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to actually pray, Jesus, what do you want me to see from this passage? What do you want me to understand from this? What about your character have I missed that I need to get, that I need to understand deeper, that I need to see this time? So read through Philippians 2 again and take on new eyes, new ears and see what he has for you because it is a passage that shapes us.
But again, here's where we need to get practical, okay? I remember someone telling me about Truett Cathy. Again, he's the founder of Chick-fil-A. And um, he had this mantra or he had this phrase or he had this way about his life that he lived in, in third place. And I heard one person quoting him this way, God is first, others are second, therefore living a life in third place. That's kind of like his, and if you saw the way he ran things or you, you heard any of his speeches or you, you've seen the way he did things, you actually saw this at work. God was first, others were second, and he lived in third place. And this is where living a humble life becomes really practical for us because this is practically what Paul says. He goes through this whole chapter talking about if, if you want this, then you have to live humble lives. Well, how do we live humble lives? You need to take on the mind of Christ. Well, what is the mind of Christ? Well, here's what Christ did. He gave of himself. He was the very nature of God, yet emptied himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And in humbling himself, God exalted him. And so you read all this stuff. Okay. You hear all of these things. And then Paul goes to the next verse in verse 12. He says this, therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God first, that's what he's saying. He's saying you wanna, the, the thing that you don't need to work out with fear and trembling is who you're going to vote for. That's not what you need to concern yourself. What you need to work out with fear and trembling is your own salvation. That is your own becoming more like Jesus because here's the reality. He's the one at work in you and he's the one at work around you. It is his good pleasure to act and work in this way. And then he goes on to verse 14. Here's what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You want to know what humble lives look like practically? It means you do all things without grumbling and disputing. Some of the other translations say things like arguing or complaining or questioning. All of these things are at the heart of blaming. This is a big one in our house. Man, blaming each other because here's what Paul's doing. Verse 14 is tying us back all the way to verses two or three and four where he's saying uh, those things like, listen, you need to humble yourselves. You need to not do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead humble yourself because here's the reality. When you are living a life of selfish ambition or conceit, here's what it produces. Grumbling, disputing, complaining, blaming, that's what it does. It produces that. You know, in our house, again, we haven't quite done this yet, but we've had this idea because it's like, oh man, where is this coming from? Every time someone blames another person, we're, we're tempted to say, you know what? You need to put a quarter in the jar. Every time you're tempted to blame somebody, another quarter in the jar. Every time you blame, another quarter in the jar. Then I was thinking, you know what? This would actually be a good idea on a national level. You know, when any of our leaders or any of our, anybody blames someone else, you put a dollar towards our national debt. You know what I think would actually be a good idea? Because I think we'd actually make some headway on our debt with this. But because the reality is, man, if we live with this selfish conceit, this selfish ambition, it produces grumbling and complaining. And what, but here's the reality. What does hum humility produce? Let's go to the next verse. Here's what it says. Because when we humble ourselves, when we take third place, it produces verse 14. 
Again, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That means that we don't get caught up in the stuff that you see on social media. We don't get caught up in the hatred or the division or the arguments or the dispute. We don't get caught up in the stuff. When we live humble lives, then we live, become blameless and innocent children without a blemish in the midst of this crooked, twisted generation. Among whom, look at this, you begin to shine like lights in the world. When you humble yourself, all of a sudden, you begin to stand out because here's our reality. In our culture right now, it seems like the biggest or the loudest one wins. It seems like the one who's the angriest gets the most attention. But what we see is that belligerence begets belligerence, right? Hatred begets hatred. That's not what our world needs. Our world needs an example. Our culture needs the church to stand out like lights in a dark world. Our world needs light. And listen, Jesus designed the church to be just that, the light that points broken people, hurting people, lost people. It, the church is designed to point people to Him. And according to His kingdom, <clears throat> the way we shine the brightest is through humility. The way we stand out, the way we make a difference, the way we actually change things is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of humility. So may we be a church that changes things the way Jesus designed them. So let me pray for us. Father, Father, we're so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you care for us. We're thankful that you are sovereign over all things and yet directly involved in our day-to-day -day lives. Even the smallest detail doesn't get past you because you delight in the relationship, you delight in being with us. And so here's our prayer. Where we struggle to live humble lives, show us how to take on your mind. Show us how to walk in your ways. Show us how to live the way you would live because we want to become just like you, because we know that's what our world needs and we know that's how you get the most glory. So teach us how to do this, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. You know, I love that passage of scripture. It's one of my favorite because of the simple truth that it conveys about God's desire for our lives our desire, his desire for your life, for my life, to actually place others in a higher position than ourselves. I need to tell you that that is a perfect picture of what God wants in our life, of what he desires in our life, what he wants for us in our life. Paul paints this picture of Jesus who leaves heaven to come and be a part of this world. He actually gives up the authority that he had, his position in heaven to come to descend 
into our world and to be like us. And he doesn't just say, this is what it looks like, or this is what you should do. He actually gives us an example of what that means and what it should look like in our lives. Friends, in a world and a culture where it says greatness is achieved or we ascend toward greatness, Paul actually says that's different in the kingdom of God. You don't ascend into greatness, you actually descend into greatness by giving your life, by placing your life in his hands and allowing people to become more important than you. Friends, as we close, I wanna ask you a couple of questions. And one of them is this. If you had to define what humility was for someone, what would that be? What would you say to them? How would you define what humility was? And then the second question is, is if you, if you were to disagree with someone, what would it look like for you to choose to be humble in that situation? Not want your own way, but choose a different way. And here's the amazing thing, that if we'll do those things, if we descend, our lives become a compelling testimony to what God wants for us and what he wants to achieve in the world. Friends, I wanna thank you for being a part of this service. And if you need questions answered or you have any more questions about who we are or what we do, then join the chat online. If you need prayer or you're ready to make a decision today, you can fill out the connect card, the digital connect card that's connected just on your screen right there. You can go to CompassionChristian.com and select the connect card and we'll get in in touch with you and get you connected into the life of the church. try to help you walk into that life-changing relationship with Jesus. Thank you all for being here and sharing in this time with you. We love you. We can't wait to see you next week. You have a great week.